0: Thanks for finding us. This is a message recorded at Fairfax Assembly in Bakersfield, California. You can find out more at fairfaxassembly.com. If dead churches could talk, that is our topic these weeks. And as I said, Pastor Johnson will be with us next week as we look at the church at Philadelphia and uh, what that long dead church has to say to us. But we're on the subject today if dead churches could talk. And uh, no clever introduction today. Because I want to rush through much of what we're going to see here in this letter. I invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 3. And I want to rush through it, to be quite honest with you, because it is so incredibly sad. And so much of it that we're going to read today... Is troublesome to me that a church would get a letter like this from Christ, and so I don't want to spend a whole lot of time with most of it. The opening of this mystery book comes to us in the form of seven letters to seven different churches. So what we'll be doing today, if you think about it, is opening somebody else's mail and reading it. Chapter 3, first six verses, see if you can pick up what... What I mean when I say I find so much of this incredibly sad and troublesome that a church would get a letter like this from Christ to the angel of the church in Sardis right? and we have already seen that part of the code has been cracked for us, and when it talks about an angel of the church, it's talking about the leader of the church, the shepherd, the pastor of the church, to the angel of the church in Sardis, another Asia-minor city, modern-day Turkey. Write this, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, and that's a description of Christ, and when it talks about the seven spirits of God, it's talking about the fullness of the Spirit. That's a reference that harkens back to the prophecy of Isaiah. The seven spirits of God speaks of the fullness of God's Spirit, and Jesus certainly has that, and he certainly has the seven stars. Those are the seven pastors of the seven churches, and he has them in his hand, we're told. That's Jesus. He says this, I know your deeds. Listen to what he says to this church. That you have a name, that you have a reputation, you have an outer reputation. I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. There is an outer reputation, but there is an inner decay, he says, to this church. Beginning to see why I don't care for this letter. He goes on to say, wake up, wake up. Only Christ can wake people from the dead, right? Wake up and strengthen the things that remain which were about to die for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. You've left things undone. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent or turn you need to course correct, turn. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments. A few people, that means the majority are dead. But you have a few in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. And I will not erase his name from the book of life. And I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so this is a message we're given to understand not only to the church at Sardis. It says what the Spirit says to the churches. And we're a church and we're included in this message. And here's a dead church that will talk to us today. It talks to us first about the condemnation that they receive from the Lord. One of the things that makes this a sad letter to me is unlike all of the other letters, there is no commendation here. The Lord has nothing good to say to this entire church, and that's tragic. Tragic doubly because they have such a high opinion of themselves and their reputation is great. You have a name that you are alive, but they're not. And for that reason, there is no commendation, but the condemnation that comes against them comes in a barrage. It's like a warship with multiple guns just firing and firing and firing the things that Jesus has to say that are wrong with them. First, he begins You are not alive, you have a name. In spite of your great reputation, you are not even alive. And so with this great reputation, anybody that thought of the church at Sardis thought great things because the appearances were great. The church had gotten everyone around them fooled. They had fooled themselves, but they had not fooled Christ. You know, we can't hide our spiritual deadness from Christ, can we? not really. We may mask it for a while from other people, never from Christ, but we may mask it for a while from other people. Other people may never know that I don't pray anymore except in emergencies. Other people will never guess that my Bible stays on the back seat of the car or on top of the fridge from Sunday to Sunday. Oh, I I proudly bring it into church, but that's about all the relationship that I have with the living word of God anymore. Other people will never know that. Other people will never know that if I say I'll be praying for you, that that's just a way that I get out of a tough conversation. And it has the bonus of making me look spiritual. I'll be praying for you, but I never do. And it has the double bonus of never having to prove that I did, in fact, pray. Who, Who will know when I'm just talking a good game about loving the poor and that it's been ages since I've really helped anybody. Who who will know that I am the last person in church to want to pass out socks and water or help provide them or, 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 or do anything that a real believer should be doing? What I'm saying is that there's plenty of cover in the way we do church. There is plenty of cover for me if I just play it right. I can have a good reputation. While I'm dead on the inside, But all of that cover, all of that posing, that should earn us pariah status, really. That's what the apostle Paul says. He sounds the warning bell for his son in the faith about people, he says, who hold to a form of godliness, but they deny the power of God. They hold to a form, but they deny its power. Paul says about people like that, avoid them. No matter how great their reputation on the outside is, there's inner decay. Avoid them, he says. It's kind of like the fakers that Jesus had to deal with all day, every day. And it's the same with some American Christians. Jesus said about them, they are tombs, really. Freshly painted tombs. They are mausoleums. And they are maintained on the outside. They're clipped and clean on the outside, but inside they are full of death and corruption. And the new paint can't hide the reality that inside there is only death. Only death. It's not for a church. It's not for an individual. Reputation like that can't forever cover the inside decay forever. Look at what that Sardis Church has to say in verse number four, you you sure can't hide the lack of life inside of me or inside of you. And for all but a few, in the good-looking Sardis Church, there's just a few, but for all but a few, there's some kind of soul sleeping that's going on. And Jesus says to them, you better wake up. You better wake up. You have a sleeping sickness in your soul and it is killing you, he tells them. Get busy with the things that interest me. Reinvest your life in the things that I'm interested in. And that's all followed by a warning that says, I'm coming. I'm coming back. You know, we talked about it in the hour before this one, that for too long the rapture The return of Christ where he will snatch away his believers, his followers. That hour when when he will return that we don't know when it's going to be. That for too long the rapture has been used to frighten people. And that's wrong. For a believer it's not to be a scary event. It's not to be something that frightens us or robs us of our sleep. The rapture is not to be like that at all. Paul said, we don't want you to be ignorant. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those believers who have already fallen asleep so that you don't grieve like those that have no hope. He goes on to say, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not go ahead of those who have already fallen asleep. There is an order when Christ comes back. Those that are dead in Christ will rise first. And he says it this way, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will be raised first. And then we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will go up to meet them in the clouds, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And then he says, comfort One another with these words. As I say, for too long, the story of the rapture and and the coming of Christ, it's been used to frighten us. And that's wrong, because for us, it's not a scary event. Comfort one another with these words, we're told. But when he's speaking about his coming to this church at Sardis, he's not threatening with the rapture here, and neither should we. When he says, I'm coming to this church that has a reputation, but inside it's really decayed and corrupt and dead. He says, I'm coming, and he's not threatening with the rapture here because these people never lived to experience the rapture, did they? The coming of Christ is still future for us, and so it's future for them, and it certainly didn't come for them. still future for us. So there's no missing the rapture threat here which is the stock and trade of so many prophecy teachers. That's not what's happening here. The Savior warns them to fan the flame of what's left and to get back to work and to finish what he's given them to do and to stop playing at making their church look impressive, stop polishing their image and their reputation, and to to remember the lost and the poor that Jesus also loves. But history tells us that they did not listen, did they? It wasn't the rapture that got them. When it became clear that they wanted to continue playing church and didn't want to be part of the church of the living God, they had a private appointment with Jesus. Not the rapture, and their church was snuffed out. Well, that's all part of the letter that I really don't care very much for, to tell you the truth. So I'd like us to pivot and turn a corner here and look at that verse number five that is packed, that is dense with promise. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. I love that promise It's a promise of purity, isn't it? That's what that white robe is all about. I will give you a white garment, a white robe. It's a promise of purity. Let me just ask you a question. Won't it feel good to be clean someday? I mean, to feel completely clean inside and out, to be completely cleansed and spotless. Won't that feel so good? That's a promise of purity here. And I've gotta remind you that the promises of Christ, they're not like like bank checks that have, after a lapse of time, they are no good. They're not like that at all. It seems like it's gonna be a long time sometimes before we feel that clean inside, before we have that robe of white. And it seems a long way off. Mark Twain made the observation He said at night there's a certain insanity that sets in and that's true. You know what that's like. No matter how long you have walked with the Lord it seems like at night sometimes and even in the day sometimes that our sins come back to us and our mistakes and our regrets and we, we find ourselves being beat up from the inside out and those ugly things that we've been part of they somehow keep crowding back into our minds. But one day we're going to be clean. Won't that be good? <laughs> there's a promise of purity here, but there's also in that same chalk to the, to the brim, verse five, there's a, a, a promise of permanence as well. You know, one of the more disturbing things that I encounter, and maybe you see it too, is this vague, fuzzy notion that people carry around in their heads for years, sometimes for decades. It's a notion that millions of people never examine or or confront to see if it's true, but they seem to stake so much on it being true. They've had a stirring in the spirit works like this. They've had a stirring in the spirit. Was it salvation? I'm not qualified to say if it was or wasn't. But at some point, they prayed a prayer. They made some kind of a commitment and they said, I am now a follower of Jesus. But it grew cold and they stopped really following you know what I'm talking about. It falls into decay. It becomes, as they look back on it, oh, that was my religious phase. That's what I used to do. I used to read the word. I used to go to church. I used to talk about Christ. I don't do that anymore, but me and God were still okay. You sure about that? I'm thinking of an extreme case. Several years back, a man, a lifelong alcoholic, was in the ICU. His family, I knew him, I knew his family better, and they asked me to go see him. And so I did. I went in to see this lifelong alcoholic in the ICU. The the point in my telling you this is not that a drinker can't belong to Jesus, because he can. But for this man, he's laying there with tubes inside and outside going in and out of his body and their are monitors that are humming and beeping and they're tracking the speed really with which some very powerful poisons that his failing wrecked body, wrecked by the excess drinking over the years, it's now failing him and in fact it will be the thing that kills him as it's releasing these poisons, these machines are tracking the speed with which they're doing that. And he lays there. It's the first time in my life I recall seeing a human being actually yellow. He's yellow. And his eyes are bulging. And he's unable to control anything in or out of his own body. And as he lays there, he's, being, he's, he's having to face the reality that his whole life long, he has cheated and failed his way through his life. He abandoned his children. He had abused his wife. He had wrecked almost everything, everything that he touched. And he had caused misery to those people that he should have loved with all his heart. But he will not pray. He will not listen to scripture or reason. He knows he is close to death, but he won't listen to either. He sees no need to get things right before it's too late. He sees no need to speak to Christ or to settle any accounts because he tells me when he was 12 years old, he prayed a prayer and once you are saved, you are always saved. Now I'm not arguing a doctrine today or arguing inside baseball stuff about a doctrine. Though, to tell you the truth, I have no problem arguing as a rule. But there are so many people, and this is my point, who say they don't believe that, that once you're saved, you're always saved. But listen to me, they live as if they do, and they launch into eternity as if they do. And they have this vague, fuzzy notion that they carry around and stake so much on it that because I once prayed a prayer, I'm okay with God. God keeps books. Do you know that? God keeps books. I don't know if he literally keeps a book. I don't know why he would have to because he knows everything. But we're told that he keeps books, and in one of his books, and it's mentioned in this letter that we read to Sardis, in one of his books, this book that we just heard Jesus, the keeper of the book, say, he says a name can be erased out of it. A given name can be blotted out. A name can be smeared over or entirely removed from the book of life. Now, that is not his choice, and Jesus has no part in its removal. In fact, it is very difficult to walk away from a jealous God, but it is done and can be done. But that cloudy, unexamined notion that once I walk with God, so I'll always be okay, that is a very dangerous one. For one who walks with Christ to the end. Because it's not how you start this thing, it's how you finish. For the one who walks with Christ to the end, for that one, her name will never be blotted out. That's what Jesus says. His name is permanent in that book. What a promise. It's a promise of permanence, never blotted out. We need to be like the five. Wise young ladies who were waiting for the wedding to start, who kept their lamps burning. Whatever you have to do to keep your lamp burning, keep it burning. Whatever you've got to do to keep your relationship to Jesus Christ, a close one, do that. If it means you have to get up early to pray because once everybody else gets up, it's chaos in the house, then you get up early to pray. If it means you have to refuse to let anything keep you home on the Lord's day, then do that. If it means you have to make a covenant with your eyes that before the ball game starts or work starts or um, the magazine is picked up or I watch my favorite show, I'm committed first to looking into God's word today, then you do that first. If you have to fast to bring your body under control of the Spirit of God, then you do that. If you have to grab yourself by your dirty neck and say if you stay one more time in bed on a Sunday, then you're going to eat just one meal that day, you lazy dog, then you do that to yourself. Make this pledge and hold yourself to it. I will not neglect my first love and the fire on the altar will never go out. Walk with the Savior all the way to the end and his promises to you are permanent. Permanent. And then finally there's what I call the in this verse 5 the promise of promises. Can you believe it? You maybe have seen one of the two movie adaptations, or read the book, or heard about, In Cold Blood. there been a couple of movies made on it, and the book, of course, is still a bestseller. It involves two men met in a penitentiary and decided on a crime spree. They initially decided that they would rob this wealthy farmer, Kansas farmer, who lived in a remote place. They would rob him because they understood he had a safe full of a lot of money. He, in fact, had no money in the safe. And when they arrived to commit the robbery that evening, everything went wrong, and they ended up murdering the entire family in cold blood. Of course, they escaped, but they were picked up. They were found. They were brought back. They stood trial, and they were condemned to hang for their crime in the Kansas State Penitentiary, 1962. So so happens, I know the man that was the chaplain at the Kansas State Penitentiary. He's now with Christ. But he told me the story, the rest of the story, about those two murderers. One of them, a man by the name of Perry Smith, who was kind of the brains of the operation, He went to him one day and he began to talk to him about Christ. And Perry told him, chaplain, I don't want to hear anything about that. And he got very verbal and very angry and cursed. And he said, I don't want you to read scripture. I don't want you to pray with me. I don't want to hear about your religion. And if you talk to me about that stuff, I'm not going to let you come around anymore. And so the chaplain wouldn't talk to him about the Lord. He thought it was better just to establish a relationship on some level, hope for the best. And over the next two years, as they awaited death row, he did that. But every time he would be pushed back violently, I told you not to talk to me about that. The other, Richard Hickok, he began to talk to him about Christ, and he didn't reject it, but he didn't receive Christ initially. But about a year into the chaplain working with him and visiting with him, He quoted a scripture to him one day. He said, did you realize that the Bible says, Jesus talking, that if you're ashamed of me, Richard, Jesus says the day will come when I will be ashamed of you. But if you're not ashamed of me, I will not be ashamed of you when it comes crunch time. And he said instantly when the convict heard that scripture, he broke It was like the great deeps broke up, and he gave his heart to Christ with many tears. And it was real. And over the remaining year of his life, he did live for Christ in that place. And he welcomed Scripture, and he welcomed fellowship, and he welcomed Christ. But never the first guy. The day came for their execution by hanging And Smith was taken first, and they asked him if he had any statements to make. And the chaplain asked if he could read some scripture. And he said, no, I told you, I don't want any of that. Because he stood at the base of the scaffold. He said, but I, I made something for you, chaplain. And he was a sketch artist, a jailhouse sketch artist, and pretty good. And he had made an envelope out of the picture that he'd drawn and folded it in on itself so you couldn't see it. And he said... Look at this after I'm gone, chaplain, it's yours, it's present. So Chaplain Ed put it in his pocket. The execution went through. He made a vile statement before he died. And then they brought in Richard. And he made a testimony for Christ. And then he died. Later on, back in his office, the chaplain unfolded that picture that the blasphemer had made for him, it was a head of a weeping Christ with a crown of thorns. Who knew what he was thinking? About a month after the execution, that chaplain noticed newspaper ad that an old ministry friend of his would be in a nearby church holding a special evening meeting. And so he thought, I'll surprise him and go over and see him. And so he drove over and He went into the church, and he sure enough surprised his friend, who was already in the pulpit, who recognized him. He said, here's my friend, the chaplain. He said, come up and say a few words. And so he came up, and he told the story of the young man who gave his heart to Christ when he mentioned the verse, if you're not ashamed of me, I'll not be ashamed of you. And he told the audience that night, he said, this young man later told me that the reason that Scripture struck him so deeply was when he was a child. He went to Sunday school about four weeks in a row before he was kicked out. He was bad then, too. And in that time, a Sunday school teacher had caused him to memorize that verse, taught it to him, and said, Someday you'll need it. And that was the only scripture he knew. And so when the chaplain mentioned it, he broke inside with it and gave his heart to Christ. And that was part of Chaplain Ed's story that night to the people. We sat down, the service went on. It concluded. And, and afterwards, he was in the parking lot, approaching his car. When he looked over, and he saw a lady sitting in her car, weeping uncontrollably. And he didn't know what was wrong. So he went over and he said, pardon me, are you okay? Is there anything I can do? And she said, chaplain, your story tonight touched me. You, you can't know how it touched me. She said, I was the one that taught him that verse come full circle it had come full circle Well, there's something about the promises of God and this particular promise that he gives to the church at Sardis he tells them I will confess your name before the Father you know Jesus can live without your confession of him but you can't live without his confession of you It is the pearl of great price. It is the treasure that makes all other treasures compale. When we stand before him and he confesses and he is not ashamed of us, everything else pales compared to that. When we say, you are who you say you are, Jesus, we gain that pearl of great price, that treasure that makes others pale. We gain that day when he will look at us and say, I'm not ashamed of you because you weren't ashamed of me. There's a verse in the 10th chapter of Romans that says if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's just that easy, and that's an easy thing to say here, but it's not so easy always to say it out there. In fact, sometimes when we confess Christ out there, that is the worst thing we can say, that Jesus is not one of many ways to God, that he is the only way to God, but that's the way you confess him. That he is the Lord who says he is what he is. That he did rise from the dead and he is the only one. That was the the almost inexcusable crime that the earliest church was persecuted for when they said loud and clear, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is not one of many ways. He is the only ways. But it's the promise of promise. Don't be ashamed of him, and he won't be ashamed of you. Some of us here were raised in a tradition of what is called auricular confession. You may not have known it by that name. What it means is it's an intensely private confession. Auricular means in the ear. And there are people here that can remember going into a little booth It was so private. And a man would put his ear next to a screen and you would speak into that and you would confess all of your sins. It was very private. It was intensely private. And it probably, confession of sin probably should be that way. But our confession of Christ is anything but private. You see one of the banners up here that talks about reaching the lost. That's one of only two things that the church is supposed to be doing. Touching the poor and reaching the lost. That's all in the world that we're supposed to be involved in. We're supposed to be confessing Christ to the world. Do you realize that this whole thing, everything that Jesus lived and died for, that's been invested in over 2,000 years, this whole thing, this story of incredible mercy, it could all evaporate in one generation if all of us would just shut our mouths and not talk about Christ. It would all go away. The word says don't be ashamed of him. You see, this wonderful calculus is so weighted in our favor, it works like this in order to gain everything, everything good in creation, everything good in music, everything good in relationships, to, to gain complete fulfillment and the highest joy, like we talked about last week, to do the thing that all of our life we've been prepared to do and to do it in eternity, to gain lasting significance and to have all of our questions that we could ever ask answered, and to experience complete peace forever, to get all of that. All I have to do is not not be ashamed to talk about what he's done for me. What a wonderful promise. And then no matter what what you once did or failed to do, when it really matters with all of creation looking on and you in the middle, he won't be ashamed of you in that moment. In fact, he'll say, well done, good and faithful servants enter into the joys of my Father. (laughs) It's the promise of promises here. As we close this, can we just go back into the painful part of this letter for a minute? In verse 2 where he says, I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. What? God sees is the end of it, isn't it? What God sees in the sight of my God, he sees all. There's no padding the story with him. There's no excuse making. There's no room for it. When a thing is in God's sight, he sees it all. I find in this painful word from Jesus, though, I've not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. I I find in these very painful words The only sure safeguard for my life, I'll tell you that. I find in them the only way to keep from sleeping spiritually and returning to the spiritual dying that I knew before Christ. I find in these words the only way to guard against that, and it's this, finish what you started. Finish what you started. Finish what you started. You started with Christ, finish with Christ. He says it this way, in another place, he that endures to the end will be saved. To the end. So what have you left undone? What's not finished for you? Who do you need to tell of Christ? What shattered relationship needs to be brought before Jesus, the repairer? What phone call needs to be made? Who, who do you need to ask forgiveness from? Your kids? A coworker that you hurt with an unkind word or somebody you took money or reputation from with your words? What's unfinished for you? I'm thinking of a young man that I met a number of years ago. I, I have never known anybody that was more proud to have been a United States Marine than this young man. He had served in the first Gulf War, and he had left part of himself there. When he came back home, he found that because of the things he had witnessed and the atrocities that he'd seen, and they were horrific, that he couldn't function in regular society. He would find himself in a restaurant enjoying the meal and then all of a sudden he would just be a a mass of, of quiver and tears and he couldn't control it because of the things he had witnessed. And it cost him everything. He was discharged from the service He lost his wife, and that was strange because he had married a girl whose father was a lifer marine, and she knew what she was getting into, but this was too much for her. And so he lost his marriage, and he wound up up here, and some family and friends asked me if I would meet him and see if anything could be done. So I did, and we became friends. This guy was a a perfect physical specimen he was cut he was involved in martial arts and active and and strong and over time things did seem to get somewhat better for him and we did different things together we'd go to ball games together and fights together and we'd eat together and spent time together and we got to know one another and I counted him a good friend and I for sure admired what he had done for our country but he got sick. Later on, they thought it might have been a result of something he was exposed to over there because his sickness was a bizarre when he shouldn't have had it. He contracted a childhood cancer on his brain. Only babies should have had it. Not a 20-something-year-old young man, but he had it. And he began to take his life away slowly at first, and then it picked up speed. And he went from almost bodybuilder status, to just a walking skeleton. But he bore it with incredible grace and strength. I remember one day I was called. He was in the ICU, one of the ICU rooms at KMC. And I've been back in that room a number of times with some of you and some of your family. I always think of him. But I went up to see him, and as I was driving to see him, Realizing that it's serious now, I panicked because I realized I had not shared Christ with him. Not really. Oh, we talked about things, but we'd become friends and we'd done things and spent time together. But I I hadn't hadn't really brought Christ before him. And I began to pray and I said, God, let him let him be lucid enough when I get there, please. I've failed you. And I went into the room and he was hooked up. And his eyes were closed tight, and they said he hasn't been conscious for several hours. So I went over to him and I began to shake him. When I when I go into a hospital room, if you're asleep, I'm gonna let you sleep. I never bother people that are resting. I know how hard it is for me to get to sleep. Don't wake me up either. Do me a favor but this time was different, and I shook him, and I yelled at him. I said, Brian, wake up, wake up. Finally, his eyes slowly came open, and I began to tell him, I said, Brian, I messed up. I said, we've become really good friends over the last few years, but I haven't told you about Jesus, and I got to tell you. I said, are you hearing me? And he nodded. And I began to talk to him about Christ and how he became the God-man so that we could get an idea of what God's really like and how he desires to live his life inside of us and what he can do for us in this life, but more importantly, in the next. And and I began to explain it to him as quickly as I could, as clearly as I could. And his voice was still a little bit there, and and I asked him, Brian, if you love me, you'll accept Jesus. (laughs) Jesus. And he said, I will, I will. We prayed and he gave his heart to Christ and that was just about the last lucid day of his life. He died a week or so later. And I've always felt like the Lord, he gave me that one. The point is, don't wait. Don't wait. If you started something, finish it. If you started something, finish it. That's the word I see in this. I'm going to ask the musicians to come back. I want us to sing a chorus that when I was a very young Christian had a great impact on my life. I have decided to follow Jesus. I've decided to follow Jesus. And that decision, you see, when we once decide that, it sets in motion a whole lot of things that are irreversible. I've decided to follow Jesus. And because I've decided to follow Jesus, there's really no turning back. We finish what we started. The unfinished business gets finished. So again, what is it for you that's been left undone? Who do you need to tell about Christ? What relationship needs to be repaired? What phone call made? What forgiveness asked for? what needs to be set right, finish what you start. Because you've decided to follow Jesus. Stand with me as we sing it together. You've been listening to a slightly inspired message from Fairfax Assembly, a different kind of church in Bakersfield, California. Find out more at www.fairfaxassembly.com.